0: Alright, it's time to get going. So you got your Bibles, open to John chapter 7. We're going to finish John chapter 7 today, verses 37 to 39. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, thank you for your word, and we thank you for these awesome verses that we're going to look at today, and uh, also a little bit at the feasts, and we just pray that you'll help us to understand and help us to apply what we learn in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to look at John seven thirty seven to 39 but before we read the verses, I'm just going to summarize the main seven feasts that you find in Leviticus, chapter 23. So, firstly, you have the Passover, so that's the one that starts everything off, because in the Jewish calendar, you got the religious calendar, and you've got the um, civil calendar. And so, the month of Nisan is the first month in the religious calendar, and the seventh month in the civil calendar, which is why it gets confusing. We're going to work on the religious calendar today. So the 14th day of the first month is the month of Nisan, and that's Passover, and that's when Jesus died on the cross. And that can be any day of the week, because it depends on the moon and all that kind of stuff. Now on the next day, the 15th of the first month in their calendar it's the feast of unleavened bread and that goes for 7 days and that is a picture of the sinless life of Jesus that Jesus lived a perfect life and then concurrently with that you have the feast of first fruits now that is the i think it's the uh, the monday after the sabbath in the feast of unleavened bread So they'd bring their first fruits of their grain. So those three feasts within the the same eight day period. And the first fruits, of course, is the resurrection. So at the time of Jesus it happened three days after the Passover. Then fifty days after Passover, you count fifty days, and you get the feast of weeks or Shabbat, which is also we call Pentecost the day of Pentecost, and that's when Jesus baptized the church with the Holy Spirit. That's when the, the birth of the church. So these first four feasts have all been fulfilled. They all had a, a meaning. They were a picture of something that was coming. It's all happened. The last three relate to the second coming. These haven't happened yet. And so these are called the autumn feasts. And this is when, it's all based on agriculture, so the first one's like when the grain harvest was, and these ones are when the, the fruit harvest is, so your dates, your bulls and plums or whatever. And the first one is the Feast of Trumpets, and it's in the seventh month, the month of Tishri. And that is, a most people believe that's a picture of the rapture, and we're looking forward to hearing the trump of God. And a few days after that is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and that's uh, many people believe that's a picture when Israel will repent and turn to Jesus as a Messiah during the Great Tribulation. And then you've got the Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, and that looks forward, I believe, to the Millennial reign of Jesus. So the menorah is a good way of remembering the feasts because you've got the three on one side, the central branch, and then the three on the other side. So you've got three feasts, one and three. If you got your Bibles open to John chapter 7, I'm going to just read those three verses. What's happening here is it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'm going to explain what happens in the Feast of Tabernacles so you understand what Jesus meant or the context of what Jesus was saying when he spoke these words. So this is happening on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, just, um, come back a little bit. Step back, because it's not really about the feast now. It's the last day of the feast of tabernacles. Within six months, Jesus is going to be crucified. So we're getting to the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, Jesus, as you know, it is dangerous for him to be in Jerusalem. They're wanting to kill him. And, you know, if you have a heart to give to someone, but someone just keeps rejecting you, what's the normal response? Shut down, tune out, back off, yeah. That's what we do. That's our human nature. I don't want to get hurt anymore. The rejection is too much. But Jesus doesn't. He just keeps going in. And he just keeps teaching. He just keeps inviting. He gives this great invitation when the majority of people are really, some believe he's a Messiah, some are undecided, but Jesus knows that in six months' time they're all going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And yet what does he do? He stands up and he offers this invitation to eternal life, to receive the Spirit. To me, it's just a picture of his unconditional love and his graciousness toward us. He knew these people would reject him. He knew where these people's hearts were at, but he still This is his heart. He wants to give to us. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Leviticus chapter 23 and we'll get the background, as it says in Leviticus, about the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. So Leviticus chapter 23 and we'll start at verse 33. While you're finding it, I'll just give a bit of history on it. So it's one of the three major festivals celebrated in Jerusalem each year and it's one of the ones everyone had to come to. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the most happy and joyful of all the feasts. It's a rejoicing feast. It celebrates the fruit harvest, so grapes, figs, dates, apples, olives, all those kind of things. And what the people would do is make a little link to with the you know palm, fronds, and other types of branch, and they would leave a hole in the roof so they could see the stars, and they leave holes in the walls so the breeze would blow through. And the parents would tell the kids how God miraculously provided for their fathers for 40 years in the wilderness. And they would tell of a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day and of bread from the sky and of water from a rock. So it's a rejoicing of God's provision for them. Which is also why it's a picture of the uh, millennial reign when Jesus again will provide for us. So, Leviticus chapter 23, starting at verse 33. I'm going to read from verse 33 to 36 and then jump verse 39 read through to verse 43. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. So in other words, have a break. Verse 39. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you had gathered in the fruit of the land, it's a fruit harvest, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there should be a Sabbath rest and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice, I like that, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate in the seventh month. So again, rejoice, celebrate. Verse forty-two: You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that's the history or instructions that God gave them. Now, as you know, other traditions appear in like Passover. You know, you got the the three. Layers of bread and the middle one's broken and hidden and, and stuff like that. Well, there's other traditions that have come about with the Feast of Tabernacles and one of them is really important for us to understand what Jesus said. But I go through the three main things and I watched a, a video on this just recently, I'm not sure what year it was, when they actually had this water libation where they where they tipped the water out and they had it reenacted with the trumpets and the shofars and all that kind of stuff. And it was just all the Jews dancing and the carrying on and the celebrations. It was really loud and noisy. I had to turn the volume down. The trumpets were like, ouch. Wow. So it's just a really, really joyful celebration. So what would happen is there's three main rites that would happen during each day of the feast. So just before dawn each day, they proceeded to the east gate out of the temple area As the sun appeared, they turned away from it and faced to the west toward the temple. Then they announced, Our fathers, when they were in this place, turned their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun toward the east. But as for us, our eyes are turned toward the Lord. Okay, so first one. The second rite was performed at night. Four huge menorahs were set up to illuminate the entire temple area, the courtyards there. In actuality, they were so large that each of the stems formed a torch. So, you know, a big fiery torch. And the wicks were made from worn-out linen garments of the priests. So that's how big these things were. They just wrap, you know, they wrap the clothes really tight or cloth really tight, make a wick when you soak it in oil. And... uh as smaller torches were carried to light the procession, or to give light to the procession, the people danced and played harps, lyres, cymbals, and lutes. The Levites chanted the Psalms of Ascent, that's Psalm 120 to 134, one psalm on each of the 15 steps, leading from the court of the Israelites to the court of the women. So imagine what it would have been like, singing, um, the, the this is at night, remember, the candlelight lighting up the walls of the temple, it would have been pretty amazing. And the third daily ceremony was the rite of the water libation. So on the first morning of Sukkot, that's uh, tabernacles, a procession of priests went down to the pool of Siloam to bring up to the temple a golden container uh, filled with water. And then each day they would pour water out. Now, I'm not sure if they went down to get the water each day or it was just once at the start of the week. I get contradicting uh, accounts there. So the shofar, the ram's horn, was blown, and the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the feast waved their um, lovers, they call it, um, L-U-L-A-V-S. Is they they make it out of those branches that they mentioned in Leviticus, and the priests carry the water around the altar. And they would recite the Hallel Psalms 113 to 118. Then the priest on duty poured out the contents of two silver bowls. One held water, and the other held wine. It's interesting, isn't it? Water and wine, the blood and the water. So this was an act of prayer and an expression of dependence upon God to pour out his blessing of rain upon the earth. So that's, you know, as a an agricultural thing, asking God to provide rain for the crops and everything. On the last or great day of the feast, and this, this feast was called Hoshana Rabbah or the great Hoshiana, it's almost like Hosanna but Hoshiana and it's translated as save now it's interesting isn't it save now so on the save now day of the feast the last day of the feast they would circle the altar seven times and pour out the water with great pomp and ceremony so this is when Jesus stood up went on the save now day of the feast and cried out those verses On that last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And the high priest would also read Isaiah 44 verse 3. It says, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. It's pretty cool, eh? Something that the priest would read. So the picture is unmistakably clear. If you look at the, what the meanings of the name of the pool and all that kind of stuff. Siloam, the name of the pool from where the priest drew the water means sent one. So that's what that means, Siloam, sent one. So just as the Messiah would be the sent one who would pour out his spirit upon a thirsty people, he is the source of the water. He is the source of the spirit. And it's this moment that Jesus stood up and broke the silence and said, if any man thirst, him come to me. This is from Jews for Jesus. It's no coincidence that Jesus chose this occasion of Hoshana Rabbah, the last and greatest day of Sukkot, to make the declaration that if a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus proclaimed himself to be the great provider, the redeemer of Israel who led the people through the wilderness. He is the great light shining in the darkness, and his body is the great temple which was raised up after being destroyed as the final sin offering. He provided the final and greatest atonement for his people, Israel, and for all nations." So, basically, Jesus is saying, I'm come, here I am, I'm the Messiah. He's in their midst, and he's inviting them to come to him, to drink from him. So, talking about the Spirit, this is what we call the filling of the Spirit, the overflow of the Spirit, the coming upon of the Spirit. And the same is true today. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you, but Has the Holy Spirit come upon you? Are you filled with the Spirit? Is he overflowing from you? Are you walking in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, emboldened by the Spirit? Because that's what it's talking about. It's Christ living his divine life through us. And I thought about this, and it's two things. We can either live a life which is overflowing with God's Spirit, with his love, and with his joy and everything, the fruit of the Spirit, and that refreshes others, or we are dry and we suck the life and moisture from those around us and become a burden to those around us because we're dry. So just a, a bit of basics here. When we are saved, we receive the Spirit within us as a guarantee or seal of our salvation, and that's Ephesians 4.30. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So that's the Holy Spirit in us. But despite having a Spirit within us, we still need to make the day-by-day, moment-by-moment choice to yield ourselves to God's will, God's power, God's provision, God's love, and His character, the fruit of the Spirit. So if as Ephesians 4.30 says, we can be sealed to have the Holy Spirit within us, but still live in a way which grieves Him, which is pretty disappointing considering all that God has done for us. But you know what? God understands it. He knows what we're made of. He knows that we're flesh. But we have a choice now as Christians. Romans 8, 5-6 to 6 and 13 says, Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled, or you could say filled, by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And then going down to verse 13 in Romans 8, For if you live by its dictates, that's the sinful nature, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. So you probably heard this before, the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics. If the plane's engines are off, the law of gravity has complete control over that plane and you're not going anywhere, you're not going to get off the ground. But once those engines start and the plane takes off, the law of aerodynamics overcomes the law of gravity, and we are free. The law of gravity, a picture of a sinful nature, is still there, but the law of aerodynamics, the picture of the spirit, is stronger and uh, is in control. So as long as those engines are running, we are flying, free from the effects of the law of gravity. But the minute they turn off, gravity takes over again. That's a bit scary. So, as I said, the law of gravity is a picture of the sinful nature. It's always there, always trying to pull us down. And the Holy Spirit within us is like the boarding class onto the plane of salvation, destination heaven, and the destination is guaranteed. But the plane isn't flying yet, it's bumping along the ground. The law of aerodynamics is like the Holy Spirit upon us, empowering us to live a spirit-filled, victorious, abundant, free, liberated, pure, whole, complete, joyful, and loving life. We fly well above the appetites and cravings of the flesh, free from its influence. So, remember the three main things that God has done for us? is justification. It's justified, never sinned. I'm forgiven, my sins have been removed as far as east is from the west. Then I'm being set free from the power of sin, that sanctification. That's what's happening now, and that's what we're talking about now. And then in the future, I'll be set free from the presence of sin, which is glorification, when I receive my glorified body and my sinful nature no longer has any effect on me. It's gone. It's completely annihilated. So after Jesus died and rose from the dead, on the day he rose again, he said to his disciples, John twenty twenty two. when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So they received the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. But were they empowered? Were they like rivers of water? No. They were hiding in an upper room, told to wait there by Jesus. So yes, they were Christians. They are born again. They had the Spirit in them. But they were still timid and unsure of what they should do. Then 50 days later, the Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost, and the first thing that happened was 3,000 were saved. So I just want to focus on a little bit today on the Spirit in us and the Spirit upon us. And people say, I received the Holy Spirit when I was saved. Well, that's true. You did. But does the Holy Spirit have us? There's the Holy Spirit controlling us? That's a question we need to ask. In Luke twenty four forty nine, Jesus said, Go and wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you shall receive power, or dunamos The same thing in Acts 1, eight. So Jesus promised a dynamic power which enables us to be his witnesses as his Spirit, not only satisfied them, but also overflowed from them. Now, if you go to Ezekiel 47, I'm not going to read it, but I'll just summarize it. It's a vision of the Millennial Kingdom. And Ezekiel sees this river flowing from the temple. And this angel says to Ezekiel, walk with me. And they walk about 1,500 feet. And the angel says, step in. And Ezekiel steps into the river up to his ankles. Walk with me, the man said again. And they walked 1,500 feet further. Again, Ezekiel was instructed to step into the river. This time, the water came up to his knees. A third time they walked together, and a third time Ezekiel stepped into the river, which now comes up to his waist. Finally, after walking further, Ezekiel stepped into the river once again, but this time he could not stand. The water was over his head. He was completely enveloped in the water. Now, I heard this illustration, I just wanted to share it with you. It's a perfect illustration of life in the Spirit. That is, you get saved, you step in, and you're up to your ankles, standing on the promises of Jesus Christ. As you head down the road toward heaven, you go a little deeper in your walk and you become aware of your own impotence or powerlessness in your life. So you call upon the Lord and you're up to your knees in prayer. Sound good? All right. A little further on in your pilgrimage, you start to want to see others saved. You start witnessing and ministering and you're now up to your waist, a picture of the reproductive life of the Spirit. Finally, you get to the place where you say, I just want to be over my head in you, Lord, immersed in your spirit, fully controlled by you, fully led by you. I no longer want to control my ministry or my destiny. Take me, Lord, sweep me off my feet, fill me with your power, control me, do with me as you wish. It's the Holy Spirit taking over, leading us. So, how does this work? Well, we've been through Exodus, and... Remember when children were in the wilderness and they were thirsty? Exodus 17. And Moses struck the rock and it poured out water for the people. And Paul tells us that the rock was Christ in 1 Corinthians 10:4. So Jesus, the rock of our salvation, was crucified on the cross. The blood and water flowed from his side. John 19.34. Now, while the blood speaks of the cleansing of sin, the water speaks of the Spirit. So the blood must be shed before the Spirit can flow. 1 John 5, six. Therefore, because the Holy Spirit cannot dwell in you or come upon you until your sin is dealt with, the first step in being filled with the Spirit is simply to get saved. You have to be saved to be filled with the Spirit. Come to the rock, and like the woman at the, at the well, you find your thirst quenched. Now the next time, in Numbers 20, the people are thirsty again. And what did they have to do? What did God say to do? Speak to the rock. Jesus has already been crucified. He doesn't need to be struck again. But Moses was sick of these whining people, as you know. And uh, Moses, you know, says, You rebels, must we fetch water for you? And he struck the rock twice. Now the water came out graciously, but Moses was punished because he misrepresented God to the people. I'm not mad at my people. God said to Moses, I'm not disappointed in them. I'm not through with them. This is important for us. When we fail, which we will do, and God knows that, it's not like God is disappointed with us. All God wants us to do is to speak to the rock and have our thirst quenched again. It's a beautiful picture. Because Jesus was crucified for us, he was smitten or struck when he died for our sins. When we are thirsty, when we've fallen, when we realize that we're weak and we need empowering, we don't need to work something up emotionally or expend physical energy. We don't need to lash out in frustration as Moses did. All you need to do is speak to the rock. Say, Lord, I'm thirsty. My life is not flowing. Nothing's happening. Have mercy. Now, Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? So, you know, some people think that you need to sing a certain type of song or have the correct atmosphere or work up emotions to receive the filling of the Spirit. But the Bible says here that we just need to speak to the rock. We just need to... Ask to be filled, to be controlled, to be empowered, and that's as easy as it is. So how do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, how do you experience it coming upon the Holy Spirit? And it's not by incantations, durations, manipulation, demanding experiences, emotional services and songs, but simply by coming to the rock given to us and speaking to the rock struck smitten for us. So come to the rock, speak to the rock, and by faith you will receive it. So I know that you've heard me talk about this before. You've been around for a while. So why am I saying it again? Well, it's part of the chapter we're studying. So I'm teaching on it. But secondly, I was just reflecting as I was going through it, and I just remember myself being a dry and empty Christian for all those teenage years. And I knew I was safe when I was eight years old. I knew God was real when I prayed to Him, but I never experienced God's power in my life until I was 17. And it wasn't because someone laid hands on me. I didn't have some special experience. I just realized that I was powerless. I couldn't help myself. And I started to see myself as God saw me, as as a dirty, rotten sinner. I realized how sinful I was as well. So two ways I saw how God sees me, that one, that he loves me, and two, that I'm really sinful. And when you put those two things together, it makes a big difference. Wow, you love me this much when I'm actually like this. You know, this is amazing. So, to some extent, I became broken, humble, and contrite. And Psalm thirty-four eighteen says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and save such as have a contrite spirit. And the Amplified Version of that says, The Lord is close to those who are of a broken heart, and save such as are crushed with sorrow for sin, and are humbly and thoroughly penitent. So I was ready to stop trying to do for myself what God had promised to do for me, to rise above my sin nature. I realized how bad I was and how sinful I was. I finally come to that place, I can't do this myself. I knew I should read the Bible, but I had no desire to. But now, I had the desire, or back then, and and continuing on most of the time, I now have this desire to read the Word of God, and that was now stronger than any other distraction. So whereas before it was, I've got better things to do, now it's something I really want to do. In fact, it's more than anything else. It's because now I'm full of the Holy Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, and it's what the Spirit is leading me to do. I didn't have to try to fake the fruit of the Holy Spirit by pretending to be happy at church. You know how you do that sometimes? You're out of sorts with God and you come to church, but you put a smile on your face. I did that most of my teenage life. And another change that happened in me, I became willing to risk persecution and tell others about Jesus, even in front of a university class. And now compare that to high school when I don't remember telling a single person about Jesus. It's so shameful, me knowing the truth but not telling anyone about it. So the change is like night and day. Instead of me pushing the car, I was in the passenger seat and being taken for a ride with God behind the wheel. And I found that what God says in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 is so true. It says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm going to read the same verses from the New Living. It says, Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are... Weary and carry heavy burdens. Now, for me, my Christianity during those years was a heavy burden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Now, for me, my experience, and I think for other people too. Trying to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit is a heavy burden. It's just painful. It's suffocating. But it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to be burnt out and miserable. Now, in saying that, there are still days when I carry a burden. I may have chosen to sin. I may have neglected my time with the Lord and forgotten my spiritual food, the daily bread of life. I may have forgotten to pray and commit my way to the Lord. And instead of looking to the Lord for guidance and strength, I rely on my own wisdom. Something that's rang true for me is uh, some advice that someone gave me about what does maturity look like for a Christian. Well, it's not about how much you know. It's not about the language you use when you talk. It's not about the type of Bible you read. (laughs) Anything like that. The maturity of a person can be measured by how often or what percent of the time they are filled with the Spirit, walking under the control of the Spirit, walking in obedience to the Spirit, under the power of the Spirit. So as we mature in our Christian walk, we spend less time trying to do things on our own strength and human wisdom and instead look to Jesus and allow the Spirit to guide us and empower us. So if you're a Christian and the Bible is boring to you or not as interesting as it used to be, then what do you do? speak to the rock. Ask God to fill you with his living water so you overflow. If you can't seem to find the courage to speak to that person about Jesus, speak to the rock. Ask God to fill you with his living water so you overflow with boldness. If you're struggling with a particular sin, speak to the rock, which is Christ, and he will give you the strength to overcome as you overflow. If you're having difficulty loving someone in a relationship, Speak to the rock, and let the streams of living water flow out of your hearts as Jesus promised to those who would believe in him. If you need wisdom, raising your children, speak to the rock, and God will fill you with his spirit and so you overflow with wisdom, love, joy, peace, compassion, patience, kindness goodness joy self-control graciousness faithfulness john seven thirty seven to thirty nine going to read it one more time. On that last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believe in him would receive. So I just want to remind you that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not about having an emotional experience. And unfortunately, in many churches, that's what it's reduced to. It's just some experience that people have. But here's the key. If there's no change in their life, then it's not a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. That's what I've come to understand. You can have a genuine emotional experience. You can have a genuine emotional experience at a football game. You know, the people we were having dinner with last night, they watched the Eagles win, and they're having a genuine emotional experience. But that's not being filled with the Spirit. Now, what makes the difference between having an experience and an authentic feeling with the spirit? Well, it's the condition of our hearts isaiah fifty seven fifteen says, reading from the you living first, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says this: I live in the high and holy place with." those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with what? Repentant hearts. Okay? And the Amplified Version says, For thus says the High and Lofty One, He who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, but with him also who is of a thoroughly penitent and humble Spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the thoroughly penitent, bruised with sorrow for sin. So if we're going to expect to live a life which is filled with the spirit, then we need to be willing to confess our sins. And Sometimes it's not obvious sins. Sometimes it's just a hard heart. And um, as Hebrews says, beware that the deceitfulness of sin can harden your heart. So if we're going to be revived, if your marriage or relationship with your kids or your witnessing or your victory over sin is going to be revived or restored, then the key factor is the state or condition of your heart, of my heart. Is the soil hard or soft? Are there any rocks? Are your roots going down deep? And here's the key. It's not about beating yourself up when you fail but rather the attitude that you have towards sin and your level of dependence upon God. When we choose to recognize sin for what it is, ugly, destructive, divisive, proud, lazy, independent, poisonous, deadly, grievous to God, and we understand that without God we can do nothing, then we'll experience God working in our lives more and more. And a New Testament version of Isaiah 57.15 is James 4.7-10. Just so you know, this is not just the Old Testament people. This is for us too. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor So again, here we are in James, and it's saying, to humble yourself before God is to be penitent about our sins. And you say, well, where does the power come from to choose to do that? Well, it comes from God. Philippians 2.13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. So without God, we wouldn't even be able to choose the right thing, let alone walk in it. And that is why God wants us to ask. It's not about beating ourselves up when we fail. It's about asking to be filled anew with the Holy Spirit. God isn't expecting perfection, but he does want us to learn to depend on him. And asking or praying is a demonstration of dependence upon God. Luke eleven 13, I've mentioned this before. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So speak to the rock. That's why I went back to that analogy in the Old Testament. We speak to the rock. We don't have to do anything. God's mercy is there. He wants to bless us. He wants to fill us. He wants to help us. But we need to be willing to ask God to help us, to change us. And the example of the dust on the coffee table, when you open the blinds and the sunlight comes in, the morning sunlight, and it reveals the dust. Well, that's where we need to be. We need to be willing for the Word of God, the law of God, to still show us where we need to change, because we all need to change. And I recommend that we um, pray this prayer freely, regularly. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts, point out anything in me that offends you, and lead me along the path of everlasting life." So the Pharisees were very religious and thought they had it all together, and look how they prayed. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So one of the greatest dangers for us is self-righteousness or pride. The independence of God, the thinking that I'm okay, I can do it on my own, I don't need any help. If it missed my quiet time, it doesn't matter, I can manage. If we want to be lifted up, exalted, spirit-filled, then we need to lose this attitude, I've got this all figured out, I know the Bible, don't tell me that I need to change, I'm good enough. Been a Christian for years. So, one of the obvious marks of this independence from God is a blame game. When something goes wrong in the marriage, it's her fault or it's his fault, depending on who it is, right? When there are problems with the children, it's their fault. If they had just listened to what I said, everything would be just fine. When will they grow up? And we've we'll been going through the Love and Respect by Dr. Emerson Egerich and uh, I want a quote from him. In other words, Children bring us to a point where we realize we do not have all the inner strength and wisdom in our spirit to be the kind of person we should be. At such moments, we can justify ourselves and blame our children, or we can acknowledge we need God. And along with this, we need to realize that God is using our children in our lives, not just vice versa. So blaming others is simply a refusal to look at yourself and see where you need to change. And I like something else that he says. However, it could be that God intends to use your kids to influence our lives more than he uses us to influence theirs. Parenting is not a one-way street. When that truth hit me, it changed the way I related to my kids. So the context there in the book is raising kids, but we can apply that to all of life, the trials, the persecution, the temptations that come our way. It's put there by God's design, by God's plan, not just for us to change them, but for them to change us, and to reveal to us where we need to change. Now, I just want to finish with a word study. I'll on the word transfigured or transformed, depending on what verse it's in. And the word is metamorphosis or metamorpho in the Greek. It means to change, to be, to have a change in nature. Now, Matthew 17, 2, you remember that? Uh, Jesus is transfigured. It's up on the hill, and he's transfigured. And they see a change in him, he starts glowing. Well, in Romans twelve two, it says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That word transform is transfigure. Okay, men of all faith, to change. Second Corinthians three eighteen. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed or transfigured into his glorious image. Now, why am I reading these verses? Because it's all about God changing us and us not changing ourselves. As Paul said in Galatians 3, 2 and 3, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the Lord Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? And Zechariah 4.6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. but I would like you to put your own name in there. This is the word of the Lord to David. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So we can put our own name in that. This is the word of the Lord to you. Okay, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is called the helper for a reason. Why? We need help. God has given us his promise not because it's something that's nice to have sometimes, but because we need his help all the time. God's commands are also his promises, and the resource that he gives us is the overflowing Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, his dynamic power working in us, to achieve what he had called us to do and to be. And the verse up on the board there, it says, uh, Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So for us in church and that, in our families, whatever it might be, if we're not relying on the Lord and it's not God's work, then it's useless. Another quote from Dr. Emerson Egeritz. The moment we cry to him for help, he is already pleased. I like that. The moment we cry to him for help, he is already pleased. As he gives us strength to love our children, he smiles. He continues further on. God intends to help us because we need his help. It is okay, in fact, it is absolutely necessary, to admit that we are powerless to love perfectly a disrespectful and disobedient child. So again, the context of the book is the family, but we can apply that truth to all parts of our lives. So we need to realize, I need to realize that what pleases a father the most is not our successes, but rather our dependence on him. Okay? What pleases a father the most is not our successes, but our dependence on him. He wants to lead us. That's his desire. He simply wants us to come to him like little children. We need to remember that we are always going to be his children. We call him Abba, Father. Now we think we're growing up, don't we? Who thinks they are all growing up now? But we're still children. We still need to rely on our Father like a little child. We need to keep our childlike faith, our childlike dependency on our Heavenly Father. And our childlike dependence would lead to a spirit-filled and Christ-centered life. Now I'm just going to read um, the words from a song that I used to listen to as a kid. And uh, it's it's called Get on Your Knees and Fight Like a Man. And it's written by Bob Hartman. Here it is. Out on your own, with your own self-reliance, you've got no one to watch your back. You find yourself caught with no strong alliance. You've been left open for attack. Over your head the condition is graver. You've given ground you can't retrieve. The cards are stacked and they're not in your favor, but you've got an ace up your sleeve. Get on your knees and fight like a man. You'll pull down strongholds if you just believe you can. Your enemy will tuck his tail and flee. Get on your knees and fight like a man. So Father, I just pray today, Lord, that you will help us. Lord, as we um, consider what we've learned today, that if we're going to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, then it involves us being willing to be changed. Lord, to be willing to have you examine our hearts and us to listen to you and show us where we need to change, to show us the areas of our life that aren't quite right yet. And uh, pray that our hearts will be soft and that we will listen to you and not try and do things on our own, not think that we're all growing up and we don't need you anymore. Help us to maintain that childlike dependence on you, Father, because only those with a humble and contrite heart, they are the ones that you will dwell with. They are the ones who experience you dwelling with them, your love, your peace, your joy flowing through their lives. So I just do thank you, Father, for this very simple message today. But Lord, so profound, remind us, Lord, to always trust you and remind us that we always need you. Keep us dependent upon you, keep us humble, keep us contrite. And Lord, help us to pray that prayer that David prayed in Psalm 139. Examine me and see if there's anything in me that offends you, that is wrong, that shouldn't be there. Teach us today, we pray by your word in Jesus' name. Amen.